One of the things I like to do uh, when I'm preparing uh, to teach, I was sharing with someone this week, uh, uh, we were talking in my office here, and, and uh, I made reference to when I'm out here, I call this mopping up. Now, that's not to minimize it. It's just because I get so blessed because I spend a lot of hours uh, both in prayer and in study and all of that. And, and I love, I just love that time. And when I'm studying, I, I do this thing, and, and it's not something I read in a book. It's just something that occurred to me one time, and I call it zoom out, zoom in. And I found it very beneficial in Bible study because so often we can get into looking at the minutia, the, the details of the thing, and we do well to zoom back out. Because I remember one time I was on a camping trip, and I went up, it was a cloudy day, uh, I went up, I lived in Washington, was going up towards Mount Rainier, and I found this mountainside in this dirt road and a four-wheel drive, got up, and, and there was this big bowl in a mountain. And uh, I was a teenager at the time, and, and uh, I set up camp and all that, and then the next morning I woke up, and the sky had cleared, and what I wasn't realizing was that right in front of me, huge in front of me, was Mount Rainier. I had no idea that I was like right across the valley from this huge, beautiful mountain. And I'm looking and I can see these blue flecks in the glaciers. So I took a telephoto lens out of my, my camping gear. I, I had a, a, an old 35 millimeter camera and I took it and I zoomed up on these glaciers and I could see the details. I could see the, the ice, the craggy ice that had been pushed up and and the blue ice, because it's really, really cold, that's what happens when ice gets really, really cold, it brings in that color of the spectrum, and I'm not going to go into all that. But I remember just being totally in awe. And then as I zoomed back out, I could see the whole mountain, instead of just looking at one glacier. And studying the Bible is kind of like that. There are times where we look at and we, we zoom in on, and we're going to zoom in this morning on some things, we zoom in on a particular thing, but we do well to keep the whole mountain as it is in mind. And so as we go through here, as we've been looking at the Gospel of John, uh, chapter one, and we're still in it, we're going to be in chapter one for a, a bit of time yet. I promise I will speed up, but I'm simply just going with what I believe the Lord's giving me to give to you. And so we're not going to cover a lot of verses again this morning, but we're going to take a look. We're going to take a side trip and take a look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we have been in the Gospel of John, we see that we, we see Jesus introduced at the beginning of this chapter, zooming out, uh, where he's the preexistent creator God that, that came and took on a body. He took on humanity, God in a body, and tabernacled or tented or dwelt among us. That he actually, the creator, came as a human being, fully God, fully man, remember, and, and actually came into his own creation, Remarkable, remarkable that God would do that. And then we begin to discover his purposes in that. And they were all focused on us, you and me. And so we see that, that, that he brings the life and the light of God. Remember, we talked about that earlier in the Gospel of John, in our studies here. And, and that as the light, or as, as the life of God comes in, the light of God comes out. I mean, that's his design. How does that happen? By the agency, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. He, by design, wants to not just dwell with us, but in us. And so we've seen that here he is. And then last week, we, we looked at the Lamb of God, where Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. We looked all the way back at Abraham and how there he was with Isaac on Mount Moriah. And, and, and Isaac is the sacrifice. He doesn't realize it yet. And he says, Father, where's, where's the lamb? And I love Abraham's response. He didn't say, uh, you are. He said, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. Uh, I'm not going to belabor that again, but just a, a beautiful passage there. And then we looked at Jesus as the Passover lamb. We went back and looked at Passover. Remember, we looked at all of the dates and how they line up perfectly. The same dates, the same feasts, the same uh, calendar, just a different name, Abib and Nisan. We looked at all of that, and then we saw how Jesus truly is the fulfillment of all that was looked back that, that comes forward as far as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist proclaimed. So we see John here. He's the forerunner of the Messiah, 
the, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets mentioned that before, uh, and that he's a voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. He's the prophetic fulfillment of what Isaiah spoke way back then. Because these guys, the prophets, were filled with the Holy Spirit, but in limited measure. We remember if you look in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that God in times past spoke to the fathers through the prophets in many portions in many ways. In other words, each one had a piece of the picture. No one had the complete revelation of God until Jesus. And so here is Jesus, the full revelation of God, of God's heart, of God's character, of God's nature. Here he is coming onto the scene. And in this part of the Gospel of John, we're going to look at something very interesting about him. <coughs> In John chapter 1, in verse 32 through 34, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, we look at the, the, the indwelling spirit. Uh, I've put some things on the, the, the screen here because it's going to be kind of fast moving. We're going to look at several passages, and I want to pull some things out of here that are very, very revel- relevant for us as the church, as a church, but as the church. The church, again, not the building, but the ecclesia, the, uh, the, the called out ones, the set apart ones, because that's truly what we are as the children of God. The ones he, became, he gave the rights to become children of God, as we've looked at here in, in the Gospel of John chapter 1. So in verse 32, it says, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a, like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So in verse 32, it's very interesting. It says that, that John saw the Spirit descending and remaining upon Jesus. You've got to realize, guys, and we'll talk about it in a minute, this had never happened. This had never happened. We read it. We know the end from the beginning. If we're well-versed in God's word at all, we know that what's going to take place. And I mean, if you've read the Gospel of John, uh, it's, it's easy to just kind of pass right over these things. And go, Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, that's very spiritual and all that. But there really is some things going on here that we need to pay attention to ourselves personally. The first is I want to make a doctrinal observation here that's very, very important that we understand all right. There are those that say, now, when the Holy Spirit came and rested on Jesus, it was for his ministry. This is the inauguration of his public ministry. Did he not have the Holy Spirit before? No, I don't believe that's true. I believe that Jesus had, had the Spirit of God in him from birth. I mean, he was the Son of Mary and the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of God. So there's this fresh new thing that God is doing now with Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and and John is very emphatic. He says twice in in these couple of verses here that the Holy Spirit remained on him. So there is a new work coming in and we do well to pay attention to that. The first thing to understand about this is Jesus did not stop being God. All right, he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives and not his divinity, okay? What, it's, it's really important. There are people that say when Jesus took on a body that he stopped being God. That is absolute hogwash, biblical word. But it is. It's, it's, it's not true. Because if he stopped being God, then he has no effectiveness in his ministry. Because, I mean, when he heals the guy in the Pharisees, the religious leaders try to bust his chops about it. He says, what's easier to do, to heal someone or to forgive sins? And they knew that only God could do that. So as we look here, and and, and I put down this passage in Philippians, and it's very interesting because it says, Paul the apostle writes, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, it was a settled issue for Jesus, and it was a settled issue for Paul. It's not something that he had to grapple with. Jesus didn't have an identity crisis. He says, But he emptied himself and taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, look at Jesus as God. Can God die? No, of course not. But Jesus 
His divine prerogative was is to come as a man. Everything he did as a man, everything he did in his ministry was in obedience to the Father, was a result of this Holy Spirit that was now coming and resting upon him. You see, so he set that divine prerogative aside. He's eternal. He's self-existent. He can't die, but he did. Because in his humanity, he had to fulfill all of these things. And to be the only man ever that death couldn't hold. See, that's when the sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. Because he who knew, um, he who was tempted in all ways, even as we are, was still without sin. And so sin is what, where death comes from. And if sin is where death comes from and Jesus never sinned, then death couldn't hold him, even though he had to become the sacrificial lamb of God. Understand that? Okay. So the first thing is, is he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. It, that didn't mean that he stopped being God. But it meant that he set those things aside so that he could experience everything there is, is to experience as a human being. The creator setting apart his divine prerogatives without setting aside his divinity to become a man, to experience those things that we experience. You know, when the Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, and speaking of Jesus, we have someone who advocates on our behalves. When I sin, because Jesus is that perfect, perfect, perfect sacrifice, he says, no, Father, that one's on me. That's on me. It, it, it's, to me, I mean, these things just blow me away. It's like, I have mentioned before, I wouldn't do it this way, but I'm glad I'm not God. Because God has set this thing up so beautifully. The next thing we look at is Jesus did nothing of his own initiative, but through the indwelling spirit, he did only the Father's will. And looking ahead, and we'll cover it in more depth when we get there, in John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Remember there Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying before the soldiers came to arrest him, and he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, that this cup, the cup of suffering that was about to come to him, if there's any other way that this could pass from me, then let it be so. But he knew, not my will, but thy will be done. Sacrifices. So when we talk about Jesus and we talk about his being obedient, you've got to understand, in Hebrews, it talks about Jesus learning obedience. In, in our minds, when I hear about somebody becoming obedient, it's because they were disobedient. Not so, again, with the Lord. He never wrestled with that. But he became obedient on our behalves. See? So it's really important we understand this. Now, the third thing, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, is the Christian understanding of the Holy Spirit, Numa, had not yet come. Now, that's the Greek word for spirit, and it means wind. It's where we get the word pneumatic. If you use a pneumatic tool, it's an air-driven tool, and it means air or wind, okay? But the Hebrew equivalent is called ruach. It's <laughs> one of those spit-on-yourselves words. But the Hebrew equivalent is ruach, and it's the same as, as the, when Genesis opens, and it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The ruach of God was hover, hovering. And it's, it's the same person, the third person of the Trinity, by the way, that was, that was there at the creation. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal, but they are three distinct persons. You've got to understand that. So when Jesus says, I'm, not, I'm only doing that which the Father has given me to do through the agency of the Holy Spirit, here's the Son... You see the whole Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity working in concert together. Three persons, one God, one essence. Uh, if people try to convince you otherwise, I grew up in a, a cultic group and, and you know, my whole idea was God was so warped and thrashed by the time I got to the point of becoming a Christian, it wasn't so much that I had to learn all this stuff, I had to unlearn a great deal of information. 
and, and I mean, when I was in Bible college, I got to the point, guys, where as I would, uh, and I never have taken notes before or since. Um, <laughs> but when I was taking notes, I mean, copious notes, I'm filling up notebooks of notes, and I got to the point where as the Holy Spirit was dealing in my heart as I'd sit in class day after day after day in different classes, and I was taking notes, I wrote a big capital M because I was a Mormon growing up. And I wrote a big capital M in the margin of my notes. I still go back and I look through them and, and I marvel because it was the Holy Spirit taking and illuminating God's word to my heart, to my soul, and delivering me from yet another heretical Mormon doctrine. I mean, and I got a lot of M's in my notes because the counterfeit, I've talked about it before, the counterfeit looks good. It looks attractive. I told people after I came out of the Mormon church, I'd love to still be a Mormon. Only one problem, it's not true. And it's a big problem. And I, and I said that in jest because I was really enjoying being free for the first time in my life because I was busy. I was busy. I, I, hamster on a wheel theology, I've mentioned it. It's just, you're busy, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing, and you're not going anywhere. But boy, are you busy. You are so busy for God, man. You just can't get enough of this work that you've got to do to work out your salvation. And man, I'm busy, 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 busy. And, and it was all for naught. And I love Hebrews chapter 4 because he talks about when you hear his voice, enter into his rest. God doesn't, it's not his will to make us busy for him. And there are times, I'm very busy. But there are times where we are so busy that we can forget that he simply wants us, even in the midst of our busyness, to have an attitude of rest. We're not called to a Sabbath day, guys. We're called to a Sabbath life. That's the difference. You know, you go into the whole thing where Jesus talks about the Sabbath being made for man, not uh, man being made for the Sabbath, and the whole deal there, and I won't take the time. Four things here about Ruach, and you'll see that these are still, I mean, God doesn't change, all right? The way that God dealt with man was changing. Remember, with John the Baptist, he came in with his baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That had never happened either. So we have these new things that God is doing this whole new work. He is going to relate to man in a completely different way than he ever had. The Spirit had always been upon a select few. We'll talk about that. So four things about Ruach. The Spirit was power. And power like a mighty rushing wind. Now, I'm not talking about a windy day. I'm talking about, when you hear, you hear someone talk about a tornado or a hurricane, they say, man, it sounded like a freight train. We're talking about power. We're talking about, now, I hear people say, you know, because the Greek word for power in the Bible is dunamis. They say, you know, like dynamite. where we get the word dynamite from. And I think that's reckless. <laughs> I just do. You know, I don't want the Holy Spirit to just go around exploding in my life. You know, and blowing people away, literally or figuratively. But the word really translates more accurately dynamic. He brings a dynamic into our lives. The power that he brings gives us, there's a whole new dynamic, and it's one that he brings. It's a supernatural thing. It's a miraculous thing that happens in the heart of every believer. Because you repent of sin release your life to Christ, and he comes in. We'll talk about that as we go. So the second is the spirit was life. It's the very dynamic of human existence. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, and you were dead. Not kind of dead, but dead. D-E-D, -E -D. I always want to say that. <laughs> but dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking dead, spiritually dead. We were born spiritually dead dead. And, and you know what? In my flesh, I don't like to hear that. I like to think, well, I was probably kind of dead in some ways. No, I was dead. I was a child of wrath, as were you. Storing up wrath, it tells us in Romans, not only a child of wrath, but, but that account was growing because of my thoughts, my words, my deeds. We were dead. And so the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, in a Jewish person's mind, was tantamount to, to life, true life. Not necessarily physiological life, but spiritual life. 
to be spiritually alive. Uh, Titus, I, I was just reading in Titus uh, over the weekend here, and it, where he talks about the, being washed in the water of regeneration. And re- to be a regenerate person is to be someone who has been, had life, the life of God imparted to them. To become, to go from death to life. And our mission as a church, guys, it's not potlucks. So much. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's not, it's not, it's not all the stuff. Our mission is the Great Commission. We'll talk about that towards the end of the service this morning. But really, our mission as a church is, is to be people who are alive, who have experienced this life of God within, and we can't wait to let that out. And we can't wait to tell Aunt Mildred at Thanksgiving dinner about this life-giving power of Jesus. I can't wait. My wife and I were traveling through Medford last week. Got out of the car and the Lord said, go talk to that guy. And I was, I'm just hungry. I want a hamburger, in and out burger in Medford. He said, go talk to that guy. And I'm like, I'm uncomfortable. I'm just being honest. I was reading recently, Greg Laurie, when he goes and shares Christ with people, he's uncomfortable. Well, if he's led tens of thousands of people to Christ, I guess I can be a little uneasy. I'm just hungry and I'm uncomfortable. And the Lord said, go talk to that guy. Okay. The hamburger will wait. (laughs) My wife and I had a glorious time with a couple and a a little boy. And and we'll probably never see him again this side of heaven. But we just had a wonderful dinner together with this couple that was homeless on the street. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the mission of the church. It's to not be so wound up in ourselves that we forget, we neglect, we get caught up in church and ignore the fact that people are dying out there. And I mean dying. So the Spirit was life. The third thing, this number C here, is the Spirit was God. The power and the life of the Spirit were beyond human achievement or attainment. In other words, supernatural. Let me talk to you about the metaphysical for a minute. Everyone has a metaphysic. Okay, Pastor John, you're getting a little weird on me. No, it's true. It's absolutely true. The word metaphysical means beyond, meta, beyond the physical. Everyone has a metaphysic. Atheists have a metaphysic. We all do. And it's beyond the physical. So when we talk about the Spirit was God and and that it was His life, it was His power, it's He Himself, everyone has a metaphysic. And it really boils down to what is truth. When you open your Bible, do you look at that as ultimate truth? I don't know why God planned it that way, but He did. He chose to communicate himself, his divine attributes, his character, his nature, his plan for mankind. He, he, he chose to communicate it through the written word. So how high do I hold the scriptures? If you hang around me very long, you'll, see, you'll hear me say it's all we've got. Yes, it's by his spirit, through his word, period. There is no more revelation. Sorry, folks. Extra biblical revelation I will toss in a heartbeat and part of my calling is to protect the people of God, to protect the flock and and I will protect against that. There are people that will come in that will try to come in and I'm not, I don't have my, anybody in particular in my mind. I've just been hanging around the church for a few years and there are those that will come in that will begin to introduce subtle heresies. They will be addressed in love but they will be addressed because this is all we've got. It's God's revelation of himself. If we change anything about it, we change the person or the work of Jesus. We change the whole message. So the Holy Spirit is the one who guides us. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus, he goes back to his hometown. And this is shortly after these things took place in the Gospel of John. I don't have it there, so... Yeah, don't try to find it. <laughs> this was an afterthought. Jesus goes back to Nazareth, and on the Sabbath, he stands up in the synagogue. 
and the attendant hands him the scroll from Isaiah. And he begins to read from what we refer to as Isaiah chapter 61. They didn't have chapter markings then, so he probably rolled it around until he found what he wanted to, to, to read. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to, pro- pro- to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He says that, he rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant, and sits down. And everybody's looking at him like, what on earth did you just do? His response, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Got him kicked out of Nazareth. Sometimes the word isn't real popular, is it? Sometimes when we're sharing Christ with someone, we see their eyes glaze glaze over and it's like, okay, I just lost them. (laughs) Understand that as the word tells us that the word of God never goes out and comes back void. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I simply threw some seeds out there and somebody else came along and watered and then somebody else came along and harvested Because the Holy Spirit is in charge of the whole thing. There is a powerful metaphysical thing going on. It's not just us going out there and passing out tracts or going out there and standing on a street corner or whatever or talking to Aunt Mildred at at Thanksgiving. It's really, there's a supernatural dynamic at work. Don't hold back. I'll tell you what, I didn't like going up to that guy at In-N-Out Burger in Medford. I really did. I'm just being very transparent with you. There's something in my flesh that goes, I just don't want to do this. And yet the love of God was compelling me. It truly was a divine appointment and I would have missed the blessing had I just blown it off. Would God have been mad at me? No. He would have used somebody else to address this couple. But I was blessed. My wife and I were both totally blessed. And it was okay with us that we got home at one in the morning in California. Because it was just a, a beautiful time. And I'm not, there's no glory in that for us. It was just pointing the way to him and my weakness. And he wants to show himself strong, folks. Don't hold back. Ask him to give you a supernatural ability to discern when it's time to speak forth, when it's time to hold back. I pray. I prayed for years. Lord, give me the gift of boldness. I was talking with Linda before the service. She said, I'm kind of shy. Sorry, Linda, don't mean to put you on the spot. I know you're kind of shy. But <laughs> Linda's shy. Um, <laughs> yeah, raise your hand. Stand up. <laughs> I said, you know, I am too. She goes, you are? I said, yeah. I don't ever get up here without the butterflies, the goofy stuff in my stomach, and I just have to blow that off and know that God's called me to do this. We're no different. The last thing here is the Spirit controlled and inspired the prophets. As I mentioned, in Hebrews 1, he he gave the Spirit in limited measure to the prophets. And each of them had a piece and a part. But Jesus, it says in Hebrews 1, is the final revelation, the full revelation of God. At this point in the Synoptic Gospels, I would be remiss to not mention this, as the Spirit of God comes and descends on Jesus like a dove and remains on him, the other three Gospels, John doesn't bring it out here, but the other three Gospels say there was a voice from heaven at this moment that said, this is my beloved Son, my one and only Son, and in him I am well pleased. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All together there at Jesus' baptism, at the commissioning of Jesus for the most remarkable ministry that would ever come about, for the most important events in human history now to begin to unfold over the next three and a half years as he would carry out the work of redemption, of purchasing your and my souls, of wearing your and my sins when he went to that cross. Verse 33, he says, I didn't know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, the word baptize here means to immerse. It's, it's the verb, it's the verb baptizing or baptos. Uh, it depends on the, the way that it's used. We use words, we put different uh, things on them. But the root word means to immerse. It means to saturate, okay? So when he's talking about the baptism here, yes, do I believe that water baptism, full immersion is the way to go? Yeah, I do. And I told my old church, I was teaching one Sunday morning, I said, I'll baptize you with a squirt gun because I don't want to divide over minor doctrinal issues. Now, if we're talking about the virgin birth or salvation by grace through faith, we're going to argue. You know, those type of things, the major things that if you change them, you change who Jesus is or what Jesus did, as I mentioned. Minor stuff, if you want to sprinkle, you can. The biblical thing I see here is immersion because that's what the word means. It means to dunk. It means to dip. It means to fully saturate. And I don't believe when it talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to sprinkle us with him. I believe he wants to saturate us with the life of God. To absolutely saturate us. Interesting, when the Spirit remained on Jesus, I know for many of us, because we have this old man, this old nature that we pack around, we have sort of spasmodic ep- episodes, I guess. And I'm not saying anybody's a spaz. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that at all. But these spasmodic episodes of the Spirit, we have these, these seasons of the Spirit. We have these great moments of illumination. And if you're like me, then 10 minutes later, I'm totally forgetting all of that. And I'm just totally blowing out there doing whatever. And it's like, I want more of him. I want more of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I know that like the John the Baptist, there's only one way to get him, more of him, and that's less of me. Because I was giving all of the Holy Spirit that I will receive the moment of my conversion. Talk about the with and the in and the upon as we go here. So truly, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is simply to be controlled by the mind and the power of God and not my own initiative. We see a great pattern, a great model of that in Jesus himself. He didn't operate on his own initiative. That wasn't because he had flesh to deal with. He was tempted, but it was because he knew that his authority, his power was coming straight from the Father, you see. So the promise of the Spirit, as we look here, uh, is we're going to talk about the with and the in. We're going to go to John chapter 14 and look at uh, a few verses there. The three manifestations of the Spirit in someone's life. Now, John 14 is during, it's right after the Last Supper. It's the night before Jesus went to the cross and he is giving his guys closing instructions. Okay, it ends with come and let us go from here at the end of John 14. We're not going to go there and, and perhaps at Easter or something we'll teach on that because I don't believe he went all the way down the hill to the Kidron and then over to the Garden of Gethsemane directly. I believe he went up on the roof and I'll just let that be a teaser. <laughs> it's clearly indicated by the following text. At any rate, they're still in the upper room and he's talking with his guys And he says in verse 15 of John chapter 14, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. By the way, what was his greatest commandment? Come on, you guys, don't look at me like that. To love, love. The greatest commandment, the great commandment is to love, to love one another, to love him and to love others the way that we love ourselves. He said on these two, not on these three, because we really don't have any trouble loving ourselves. It's our biggest problem. But on these two hang the law and the prophets, the whole old covenant hung on loving God first and loving one another. Easy to say, huh? Not so easy to do sometimes. And yet we're growing. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper who may abide with you forever. Now, the helper there, the Greek word is paraclete. For those of you that are well-versed in the Bible, you know that he's the one that comes alongside of us. 
He is the one who helps us. Not He doesn't help me take out the trash or do the laundry, but he helps me. When my back's against the wall, I know that the Holy Spirit is there to help me through. He is the one that gives us the ability to live well in tough circumstances. He's the, ability that gives us, he's the one that gives us the ability to love somebody that's really not that lovable. He's the one that gives us the ability to understand his word. He's the one that gives us the ability to identify sin in our own lives. I mean, he does so much. And yeah, the, the Bible uses the masculine gender, he, it's not she, the Holy Spirit, us. <laughs> Sorry, some people like to mix that up, but God uses the masculine gender and he is a person. He does have distinctives. He does, there is a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. You've got to understand, he is a person. And we'll look at that as we go because there's some important things that we need to understand about him here too. He says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, why can't the world receive the, the spirit of truth? Because their sins are not forgiven. God is not going to come and dwell with sinful man in that sense. Now he did in Jesus because Jesus took on a body. But the very spirit of God is not going to come into a vessel that has not been cleansed. So you don't get the Holy Spirit unless you've done business with Jesus, unless you've been to that cross and, and, and taken the power of the cross, the, the power that he gives in forgiving our sins and cleansing us and sanctifying us and justifying us and all of those things that part of that transaction, you have to have done business with him and come to faith that he did that for you, repented of your sin and released your life to him to have this. But he freely gives the Spirit Without measure. He tells us without measure to his people. So it says, the, the world cannot receive him, but it neither, neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now Jesus is talking to his guys here in the upper room and he's giving them a little bit of advance notice that things are going to change, guys. He's with you, not yet in you, but will be in you because he knew that by that time tomorrow he would be in the grave. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Again, there's that physical life versus spiritual life. You know, the Bible presents two births and two deaths. There's physical birth and there's physical death. You either have a rebirth and don't have a second death. The second death is a great white throne of judgment. Nobody wants that. You don't want to be there. So you're either born twice to die once unless the rapture happens and you're fortunate to be in that group that meets with them in the air. Or you're born once to die twice. No other options. He says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And at, at that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So who does the Holy Spirit represent to me as he lives in me? Jesus, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, he says that he's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And we'll get into that later. But, and, and it says that, that he will lead you into all truth and he will glorify me. He will look like me in your life. So when I see what amounts to, it looks like a circus show and people with a glory cloud in an auditorium of gold that somebody pumped into the air conditioning system and everybody's got their cell phone out and they're pointing it up there going, look at the glory of God. And I measure that up against the word of God. It doesn't count. Those are people who have been deceived. They're people that have, for whatever reason, they've either heaped to themselves teachers according to their own lusts, like the Bible says will happen in the last days and we are in the last days. Or they're people that are just misled. Because if you look at God's word and you see what happens when the glory of God shows up, what happens every single time? Baby, you're down. You are not thinking about your cell phone. You're on your face. 
because you are completely aware of the holiness, the majesty, the purity, the, the consuming aspect of who God is and who you're not. And you're down. Ezekiel. John the, 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 John the Apostle in, in the book of Revelation. I love that in the book of Revelation, by the way. He says, and I looked and I saw, I turned around and saw Jesus in his glorified state and I went down. And you want to know what Jesus does? Read it. John, or Revelation chapter one. He walks over and he puts his right hand on John. He says, don't be afraid. I love that passage because it shows us so much about the Lord. So I know this really freaks you out, John. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. You don't have to do that. No, it's me. And he loves him. He says in verse 20, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There's a parallel passage to this in John 17. I almost put in this morning, but it's like, I don't want to wear you guys out too much. But the point is, is that in this parallel passage, Jesus is laying out what this ministry of the Spirit looks like. Jesus said, I've given them the things that you've given me, and I'm in you, you're in me, I'm in them now by the agency of the Spirit, and they in me. So there's this deal where he says, I'm doing the things that the Father's showing me. Now I want you to do and to live and to construct your life, to build your life over the things that I am doing in you through the agency of the Spirit. Because if you block that, one of the, there's one thing that'll happen. Well, number one, you won't have power because the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when we decide to cut and run, goes from that of empowering to coming around to head us off and to say, wait, 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 John, no, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't entertain that, whatever it is. So, but we can grieve the Holy Spirit as he wants to control our lives. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he, he says in verse 17 that he dwells with you and will be in you. And for these guys, it was because Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. And he was in them when Jesus, after he went to the cross, remember he goes and he breathes on them to receive the Holy Spirit. And, and that was what he did with those guys. And it was because he knew that they believed, which was, that was the requirement. And he breathed on them. They received the Holy Spirit. They were transformed. But there was yet another manifestation that he told them about as they went along. He says in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's the Holy Spirit. He's trying to give these guys a heads up that when he goes to the cross, he knew he was good. They were still puzzling and trying to figure out, can you imagine walking with Jesus? You never knew what this guy was going to do. You never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. I mean, we read this stuff and it's like, great, it's fun Sunday morning stuff or personal devotion stuff. But you read this and you realize that this guy, you know, you never knew what was happening next. They didn't understand any of this. Further on in this chapter, it says that they were really bummed out. They were really sad because they were like, he says, you know, sorrow has filled your heart. But they would understand. Why? Because the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit would reveal the things that were taking place. And it talks about that further in the Gospel of John. So in the with, each person in a practical sense, before I came, before I gave my life to Christ, I'll tell you what, I was on a 10-year search for God. And I did. I mean, I studied for a year with Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I kind of bagged the Mormon church for a while. It's like, I'm going to find God. I went to seances. I had this weird stuff going on there. I got with a couple of other cults of this one this guy by the name of Victor Paul Weirwill and the Way International, which, and he's dead and that thing all fell apart. But I mean, I just went from one false religion to the next. And all I wanted to do was to know God. I mean, I had this experience of him at five years old, sitting by myself alone at a picnic table in the backyard, and I knew that God had set me apart. And I was just simply wanting to find the one that had done that miraculous thing in my heart back then. 
And I had to go back into the Mormon church and get active, shaved off my beard, bought my three-piece suit, did all that stuff. But I had to go back in so that I could get back out because God, again, the Holy Spirit just illuminated to my heart the folly of all of that. But that was the with for me. He was with me. What it does is there's, there's, there are these promptings, these who am I and what am I, why am I here kind of stuff, you know? Uh, I feel empty. I, I don't, I feel like I'm wandering through my life. I don't have any purpose. I don't have any direction. I have this longing inside. I, I just, I knew that I knew that I knew that I had to have God. And I wasn't aware of all of the, the details, but I was aware that he was drawing me. And I remember I told this story to one of the guys that interviewed me for Bible college. I had to travel from Oregon down to Southern Cal to get interviewed for Bible college. And I told him about all these places where I'd been searching. Man, I'd been turning over rocks looking for God for 10 years. And I finished, and he just looked at me, and his eyes kind of bored into me, and he said, one thing, and it always stuck with me, he said, are you home? And I said, oh, yeah, Rick. His name was Rick. I said, oh, yeah, Rick. I'm home. He said, how do, you, how do you come to that conclusion? I said, because in all of these things that I looked at, all of these things I searched out, all of these experiences I've had for 10 years, I knew when the Holy Spirit came in that this was real. I knew when my life got turned upside down at this little church in Eagle Point, Oregon, that I knew that I was home. I knew that there was a power here because I had believed the true gospel. And there was a power that I had never experienced before. There was a hunger in me. I mean, and, and it's, I sort of hit the ground running. I just, I couldn't get enough of God's word. I mean, I understood it for the first time. It's like all of these things. I knew that I knew that I knew because I was home. So the with brings these promptings. There's, there's generally a sense of emptiness or there's a sense of not belonging. There's a sense of unease with my life. And folks, ask the Lord to show you that when you're dealing with others. And, and, and just give, have him give you boldness. I had no idea that this couple standing outside of In-N-Out Burger, that God wanted to have a, a, a divine appointment with them. He wanted to just use my wife and I. It was like, you want to use us? Well, we're available. And you know, he doesn't want you to have all of these gifts and you know, this, you don't have to be some scholar or some Bible expert or you just have to be a regular Joe like me or like her. I, it's just, you just have to be available. You have to say, Lord, use me. Use me. Because your words are life. Your words are spirit your words are life. So the coming on of the spirit is what I want to uh, coming upon of the spirit is what I want to talk about next and I'm going to kind of go through this quickly because we're running out of time. In Acts chapter 1, we see a, a, just a wonderful segue here going out towards the end at the end of Jesus's time here on earth. After he said these things, he would ascend into heaven and the guys would stand there and watch as he went up into the clouds and he was done. But he wasn't done. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4 of the book of Acts. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here's a fulfillment of what John says in John chapter 1. And Jesus is actually bringing, he's driving it home at this point. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still expecting him to do something then. Because all along, I mean, when he fed the 5,000, they wanted to sack him, put him up on their shoulders, and take him off to Jerusalem and install him as king so he could throw off the Romans. And we'll get to that in, in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, because what he does, his response to that, is he goes across the Sea of Galilee, and the next day he stands up in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he says, if you want anything to do with me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And to a Jewish mind, that was the most stumbling thing you could say. And what happened? Everybody left. 
everybody left to the point where he looks at his own disciples. He says, what about you? You're going to leave too? And Peter, with those famous words, where else would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Think about it. Church growth programs. Won't find them here. Not part of it. Healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. I mean, truly. Jesus thinned the ranks on purpose. You don't see a lot of preachers doing that these days. And I'm not here to thin the ranks either. Don't get me wrong. But he thinned the ranks on purpose because he knew that they had so gotten it wrong. He says, you are following me because I fed you, not because I have the, the ability to redeem your soul. And he thinned the ranks. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, asking him if he was going to restore the kingdom. Interesting, they asked him this twice in the New Testament. The first time he answered them, he said, only the Father knows the time. The second time he said, it's not for you to know. Because he'd already been with the Father. He'd already been glorified. And he knew. But he said, no, it's not for you to know. He always puts the importance on being ready. He doesn't put the importance on know the date. He doesn't put the importance on, he says, you know, let's, why don't you go read a book on numerology and figure it out. No, he says, you be ready. You have that wick trimmed. You be in a place where you are, as the bride, you are waiting for the groom to show up. That's the attitude of the heart he's looking for. In verse 8, he says, you'll receive power. There's that word, dunamis. You'll receive the spiritual dynamic when the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. See, here's that term, come upon. And Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, and they're in Luke chapter 4. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The prophets would say, Isaiah would say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me over and over again. And there's this coming upon there's this baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes. And, and yes, if you have believed, if you are a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. He is in you. And I believe that there is a separate and distinct event for the children of God where the Holy Spirit comes upon someone. And he comes upon us for service. He comes upon us to empower us. Not some weird deal. But there are times, folks, where I have seen churches go through this. I have seen people grab a hold of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not some weird show. It's not some circus deal. But there is, there is just this anointing of power that comes that people have the ability now to fulfill that which God has called them to do. I know after the Lord called Stacy and I here, and I'll just share this with you. I don't share this with anybody. I began, there was a stirring inside of me and, and, and I began to think of, look at things differently. And as we met you guys and as we have come in here, the Lord has given us a, a, just a tremendous love for this church, for this body. And, and, and I was looking in Hebrews chapter 13 and, and realized that he equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped, but he calls and he equips and part of that equipping is a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, an equipping of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the ministry that he's given us. And he wants to do that with each of us. He does say ask. He says you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And on Pentecost, all of these guys that had the Holy Spirit were up in the upper room praying, remember? And the Holy Spirit just landed on them. The sound of a violent rushing wind. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's the Great Commission, obviously. And folks, I submit to you, you cannot carry out the Great Commission without walking in the Great Commandment. We, as a church, can't do it. You individually can't do it. It has to be driven by love. Because what is the primary fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, he talks about the deeds of the flesh, things you do. 
And he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. You don't try to produce that. A tree doesn't struggle to produce fruit. It shows up when you're walking in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And I look at that as love manifesting as joy. Love manifesting as peace. Love manifesting. Those are his attributes. You ever think about the Holy Spirit? He's loving. He's, he's at peace. He's patient. Oh, am I glad for that. He's kind. He's gentle. He's faithful even when I'm not. He's, I look for the Holy Spirit's fruit in my life. The last thing I want to cover here, and I'm going to run over just a little bit, so I, I beg your uh, indulgence here, is we couldn't give an overview of the Holy Spirit without talking about what it is to grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Ephesus in Asia Minor, a church that he had planted. But what is good for necessary edification, building up, that's what edification means. An edifice is a building. He says, let it be built up that it may impart grace to the hearers. He says in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? I was talking to someone yesterday. I'm close to I said, have you ever gotten all dressed up and had an appointment with somebody that you really cared about and gone to meet them and they didn't show up? And the person I was talking to said, oh, you mean to be stood up? I said, yeah. Oh, yeah. What would, what would it feel like? And I know we're talking about feelings, a little nebulous here, but what would your experience be at being stood up? Would you be grieved? Yeah, I would. Yeah. He goes on, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? You stand him up. You stand him up. He wants to bring his fruit into our lives. And he won't violate your will. If you want to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you can, but it'll cost you something. It'll cost you your right to yourself period. If you want to stand him up, entertain bitterness in your heart towards someone else. If you want to stand him up, be angry. Just be mad at that person. Stay mad at that person. I don't care. They have it coming. Clamor for attention in a, in a, in a way that's not godly. That's not edifying. Speak evil of other people. You know, I, the Bible talks about God hating gossip. And I've told people, and I will again, I hate gossip and so does God. Six things, no seven in the Proverbs that he hates. You want to stand up the Holy Spirit? You want to grieve the Holy It's grief, you guys. Think about it. He grieves. I mean, we're not talking about this passive doctrine. We're talking about a person who is grieved by what I am doing or not doing that he doesn't want to see. Is he mad at me? No, because the cross has rolled that away. But does he want more from me? Does he want better of me? Does he want to dwell with me? Yes. So you want to grieve the Holy Spirit? I've seen entire churches grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's so sad to get caught up in this clamoring, in this backfighting, this infighting. It's like, who does this? Who does that? And all this stuff. And the Holy Spirit just wants to convict hearts and hearts get hardened because I'm stuck on my thing. 
He says, let it be put away from you with all malice. How do you please God? How do you work in concert with the Holy Spirit? Verse 32, just be kind to one another. As I was mentioning, I read in John 17, I almost used that passage. I thought, no, I'll just share. Twice there, Jesus in John 17 says, when the world looks in and when the world looks at the church, when he sees us in unity, that will be proof that something different is going on. I've talked about it before, guys. Repentance is a, a beautiful thing. It requires humility. It requires clarity and honesty before God. And the result of that is me not standing up the Holy Spirit, me not grieving the Spirit because I'm stuck in my thing. Reading Titus, Paul tells Titus, he says, you know, there are hard things as a pastor that you share with your church and I want you to share them. Not harsh things. I'm absolutely committed to not beating God's sheep. I will not do that because it's between you and the Lord. But folks, we can grieve him. I'm convinced that a church that is in the habit of grieving the Holy Spirit will not grow. It will not grow. Because God wants to get things squared away in there before they're a light out there. We can do the same thing Israel did. He called Israel to be a light unto the nations. And they got so hung in their thing that they were of no effect. They're still his chosen people. We're still his chosen people. His, the people that are grieving the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, he still loves. But it's as though he comes and he says, I'm here, I'm waiting for you. No, I'm going to do it my way. And I don't say it, but by doing it my way, I'm standing him up. I'm leaving him to wait. I don't want to end on that note because God's love for us is so great. It is so magnificent that he does beckon to us to stay current with him. If the Lord has convicted your heart about anything this morning, I want to go to prayer. We're not going to have a last song. I don't know if you guys planned one, but, but we won't because we're running late. <laughs> but I want to go to prayer. And I want to ask you to invite the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. Invite the Holy Spirit to put his finger on things in your life that perhaps you need to get squared away with him on. That perhaps you need to say, you know, Lord, I've been standing you up in this area. And I don't want my life to be marked by that. I want my life to be marked by your life working through me. I want to be effective in your kingdom. I want to be that city set on a hill that can't be hidden. I want to be the, the, the guy or, or the gal that, that you press into service even when I'm not even expecting it. Because I want to be a beacon for your love. Not clamoring, not hung in my own thing. Let's go to prayer for a minute and uh, just bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord. And Father, this is we take a couple of minutes and just allow a quiet time with you. We pray by your Holy Spirit you would search our hearts. As your word says, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your way. Lord, thank you. Just allow the Spirit to minister to you. Father, you have granted this great privilege called repentance. Give us humble hearts that are given fully to you. Give us hearts of thanksgiving. Yeah, it's the season, Lord, but that should be the attitude of our heart all the time. Let us have paramount in our lives the objective of glorifying you of shining the light on you, being used by you 
enjoying fellowship with you and that you would have that first place in our hearts. Lord, I know you've worked in my heart in preparing for this message that I can't just sit here and speak it without looking at my own heart. And I truly do ask you to forgive me for those things that you've shown me. I pray that be the case with each one in this body, that the result would be a vibrance and, and just an awake awakening in this church and awakening in our hearts to being fresh with you, to being empowered, to carrying out that great commission and walking in the great commandment with one another and with people outside, that they truly see there's something different about us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the work that you've done in drawing us to yourself. Thank you for the work you're doing. We look forward to the work you want to do. We praise you. We love you because you first loved us. And we come before you only in the name of and the power of and through the blood of Jesus, your son. Amen.